Hello, this is the F-Rated Podcast. I'm Anu Anand, journalist and broadcaster. And I'm Holly Tarquini, the founder of the F-Rating. And that F is for feminist, which is intersectional feminist, obviously. Now, Holly, last time we had a lovely chat about all the reasons that we wanted to make this podcast. But I realized that we, we didn't really talk about your experience in TV and films. So just give us the elevator pitch. Oh, so I spent quite a few years as a producer director in television and I made so many different kinds of programs. So they were all factual. Now it's called unscripted, and which is ironic because lots of them I wrote very extensive <laughs> scripts for. Um, but the one that I think is most pertinent to this podcast is a five part one hour series. So that's five hours that I made called Women Talk Sex, which was Ooh. a kind of feminist polemic about what turns women on, how we're conditioned, whether you should use your sexuality to get what you want in life. Um, yeah, and it was quite, it feels like a lifetime ago. It was pre-kids and pre-running a film festival and pre-F rating. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I didn't, I, do you know, as for as long as I've known you, I've never heard you talk about that. So that's a whole new thing for me to explore. So you founded the F rating in 2014 when there were hardly any films being directed by women. And we talked a bit about how it's not that much better now. No, it hasn't changed that much. And the rate of change is so incredibly slow. People always do statistics of, you know, if we keep changing at this rate, then it'll take us another 500 years to get parity. So, yeah, I'm afraid I'm not very optimistic about it today. Well, never mind, because we're doing our bit, aren't we, Holly? I mean, this podcast is all about hearing from amazing women in film. And we're about to hear from a really, really top guest, a producer and the irony is that you might never have even heard of her. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? And one of the things that I really like about this episode is that we dive down into what a producer is and how confusing that title is. Um, and Rebecca, who we're about to hear from, one of the things that I love is hearing about her early career in feminist filmmaking and the film that she tried to make with an all-female crew. Anyway, I don't want to give away too much and I hope you find this as inspiring as we did. So we're really happy to have with us one of the most experienced and respected producers in the industry, Rebecca O'Brien. She's the person behind Ken Loach's most successful films, including Palm Door winners The Wind That Shakes the Barley in 2006 and I, Daniel Blake, in 2016. And of course, uh, Ken Loach isn't the only director she works with. In 2019, she produced Lynn Ramsey's multi-award winning You Were Never Really Here. What a chilling, interesting film that is. And the wonderful 2019 indie feature, Lynn and Lucy, which centers on the profound and complex lifelong friendship of two young women. And also, if you haven't seen Sorry We Missed You from 2019, that's a really intimate, heartfelt depiction of a family, uh, both parents working in the gig economy in care work and package delivery. We'll talk about that too, its impact on families. Amazing view in that film. So a really huge welcome to you, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Anu. Um, I I have to backtrack on your introduction. The, the 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 two other films that you mentioned were actually not really produced by me. Um, Lynn and Lucy was produced by my colleague Camilla Bray. I was an executive producer, and um, you were never really here. 
uh, was produced by lots of people and only in a small part by me because I only did the British end. I have produced things with other directors, but <laughs> I can't really take the credit for those two films in the way that you've given it to me. But uh, I, I have been producing for a long time and with other people other than Ken, so that's all right. <laughs> okay, well, well, that's that's interesting. Maybe you can you can unpack that for us because that's probably me not fully understanding the role of producers both when you're solo and when you're producing with other people. Yeah, I mean, the films that I've done with Ken, I've been the, the main and only producer. There are distinctions. There's like an executive producer is usually somebody who's helped raise the money or supported the film. Um, and then there's also producer credits often go to people who have helped make the film happen. They might be a co-producer. They might be producing for their country uh, when it's a multi-country production, a co-production. But their country isn't necessarily the main country that's that's been making it. So in the case of Lynn Ramsey's film, you were ne- never really here. It, it's an incredible film. I can say that because I didn't actually produce it really. I just did... She did the post-production here in, in the UK and she did about a week's filming here, which I supervised. And to that extent, I am a producer. But it, it's, it's difficult because people claim producers' credits and have burdened me with producers' credits, which I don't believe are actually warranted when you're actually a producer for hire or you are an executive producer. Anyway, that's producing for you. Well, no, but Rebecca, that's really helpful because I've got a really big issue. So when I set up the F rating, I applied it to every film directed and or written by a woman because what I was really passionate about then in 2014 was who tells the stories. And the reason I didn't also apply it to producers was because of the complexities that you're talking about. And I felt that I didn't really know how to say and the producers, but only the producers that really actually produced the film, not the ones that funded it or got a credit as kind of payment, but didn't really do the job. So can you describe to me the role of a producer when you are a kind of full on producing the film? What do you do? Okay, so so my role is really looking after the film from inception through to the archive. I will work with the director and writer right from the beginning of the idea and I, 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 it's like a sort of macro role. As a producer, I'm the first interface between the film and the public. So in the case of, say, a Ken Loach film, I will be there when we decide which film to make next because that's usually a dinner between me and Paul and Ken and that's sort of like, that's the way it's always happened, certainly in the more recent years. Obviously, one of my main jobs is to raise the money and then to make the money compatible with the production. So it needs a sort of legal process going on to make the money work and function for the film. The way I would put it is I'm the first, second opinion at every level. So during pre-production, you're finding the right cast and the right crew, the right heads of department... And I will be involved with the director in location finding. So I'm sort of always there at key moments. In, in a way, most of my work is done in preparation. If I've done my work well, then I, I'm actually not really doing much during the shoot. But I have always got an eye to marketing the film and, and, and presenting it to the outside world. 
Um, like at the moment we're in the editing room cutting our new film. I'm not busy on it at the moment. I'll pop in and see them. But the next stage is very much the launch and the, you know, once we finish doing the post-production on the film, I'll be very much involved in how we launch it, how we get it to the outside world. So I've always got an eye to the relationship between the film and its audience. So that that means that there is inherently a bit of creative input. I mean, you're not there every day sort of, you know, uh, deciding how to film. But but overall, that does then involve an awful lot of marrying the creative input with how the film is going to work out in the world. Oh, it's a very creative role. I think that the producer-producer is deeply involved on a day-to-day level. And when, when we're shooting, I'm not doing anything else, really. And I am around a lot, you know, I'm usually around most most days and, and I will usually find a way of having a good conversation with the director every day and also with other people involved in the film. So the main actors and the main uh, heads of department, I will keep a weather eye on what's going on. So, yes, and I, if we get into problems, I'm the person where the buck stops. So I have to troubleshoot my way and or the film's way out of any issues so those solutions can be very um, creative and need to be creative often so Rebecca I wondered like why does everybody still always talk about the directors so in in doing lots of research into your past you're always referred to as you know the producer that works with Ken Loach on Ken Loach films you are the person that sorts them out, gets all the money for them, sorts out who's going to sort out the locations, how every element of it is going to go together, how it's marketed and how it's put to bed, which is actually a more substantial role, isn't it? Well, I think they're equally substantial. I think that actually the person that's missing in this conversation is the writer. And, the you know, the writer is the, the person who's actually invented the story. And so they are of equal importance as well. And the way that Ken, Paul Laverty and myself look at it personally is it's the three of us. It's a tripod and it's a strong tripod. The three of us are great friends, love working together, have a really good modus operandi. And we find that 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 works very well. So, um, but the fact that it's got Ken Loach stamped all over it is because he is the, he's like the brand you know, you, you you make it easy for people to focus in on your work by having a brand name. And that's why the directors, because they are choosing from the material and the people supplied what goes on the screen, they are at the centre of the creative side of it. I mean, if, if, if somebody else were to, to, to have the same tools, they would make a different film. So the director, in in a way, is the brand that you are marketing. And frankly, I am happy to have it that way. I actually prefer not to have the pain of the fame. Um, I much prefer to be a backroom person that... Well, actually, you know, I'm like the Wizard of Oz, really. (laughs) Yes, and that's... 
that's why I'm interested. And so again, with the, the so the F rating was conceived because there were so few female directors and the statistics had been awful. And even last year, I think it was 17% of the top 250 films were directed by women. And there are more female producers. So there were more like 32%, I think, of the top 250 films. But I am I'm very interested in the fact that producers do so much work and, as you say, are often happy to be the wind beneath the wings of the director who is the one whose name everybody knows. So, yeah, but when you started as well, you were doing very feminist stuff, weren't you? I was intrigued by Sacred Hearts. Can you tell us a bit about that? God, it was so long ago. Um, Nuns and Schoolgirls and uh, Coming of Age, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, it was an attempt to make a film entirely with women back in 1983, I think we shot it. And uh, Barbara Rennie, who's an American, Anglo-American woman who both wrote and directed the film, wanted it to be almost entirely female. It was difficult because there weren't women construction people and there weren't women sparks there was one woman spark and we had her sorry what is a spark is that is that an electrician yeah of course it is okay and uh there was it was difficult to get the full crew but we got close i think that probably 90 percent of the people who worked on the film were women and that was it was sort of problematic actually i mean in in our periods all sync synchronized which was terrifying and then it transpired that the, the, the camera woman Diane Tams was heavily pregnant and she was sort of pretending that she wasn't she was just pretending she was a bit fat and we had an enormous woman on on, on her dolly <laughs> going backwards and forwards in tracking shots and, and it's it, very 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 female cast including the wonderful Anna Massey and Catherine Cartledge and Kathy Burke in it was sixteen at the time. There's all sorts of wonderful people in it. It was a it was a fantastic attempt to make an all women film and 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 great fun. My role was uh, production manager, and that was a, a training role really. Another one of your early roles was location manager on My Beautiful Laundrette. This was before you met Ken. Did did you know how good that film was as you were working on it? It was an incredibly exciting film to work on. And I'm very proud of my work on that film because it's very much a location film. The the locations are really central to it. And I worked very hard. But the one of the great things for me, I mean, it was a fantastic opportunity, was that I lived very close to Stephen Frears at the time. And so I was driving him around. And so also listening to him and talking to him and chatting with him a lot about how the film was going to be and it was sort of experimental from all of our points of view we nobody had made a gay Pakistani laundrette movie (laughs) at the time so it was it was really groundbreaking it it I tell you what it had an incredible energy most of the people who were working on it were in their 20s and a lot of people hadn't worked on a feature film before and so they were very excited and, and so there was an amazing energy about it, both from the cast and the crew. And a lot of people in the crew went on to do really interesting things and the cast. So it was, it was just very fresh and it was also sort of anarchic and revolutionary. I mean, you know, I kept on nearly being arrested because of, you know, I, I, like, for instance, 
there's a scene where the, there are trains going past the bedroom window all the time. They really were going past the bedroom window. And I was on a walkie-talkie on top of a tower block watching Victoria Station and saying to, saying to Stephen, there's a good train coming, there's a good train coming, turn over. So I actually had my hand in some of the direction of that film. I got nearly arrested on, oh God, one of the stations near the locations as well. I mean, all the time I was putting my neck on the line, but it was a sort of anarchic, revolutionary moment. And we all had an amazing time. We tried to replicate it actually a couple of years later with another film called Sam, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid, but we were so smug about My Beautiful Laundrette, it just didn't work. And so, you know, these things have their moment. And that moment, the Laundrette moment, was pretty special for all of us. It was, I remember it so well coming out and watching it and loving it, watching it far too many times. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great film. So just hopping back to your feminist roots, um, working with Laura Mulvey. So I'm just going to say for anybody that doesn't know that Laura Mulvey is kind of the queen of feminist film theory and founded the phrase male gaze. And you worked with her right early days, I think. Is that right? Absolutely. The very first film I worked on, I had met Peter Wallen and Laura Mulvey at the Edinburgh Film Festival. Linda Miles, who ran the film festival, an extraordinary woman. And if you haven't done an F-rated podcast with Linda, you should do one. Um, she ran the film festival uh, from the, about the age of 23 for 13 years. And it, it wasn't a little film festival. It was a really important film festival. Anyway, she did a feminism in cinema event and Laura was very much involved in that. I, I was still, I was friends with Peter and Laura and they said, well, come and work on this little film we're doing. So I did, and that was my first opportunity. I was sort of thrown in at the deep end and worked as a production manager, location manager for them on a film called Crystal Gazing. I also did um, Peter's last film, which was called Friendship's Death, which was film which uh, Tilda Swinton uh, had her first lead role in. I'm very proud of that. It was a, it was um, shown in Cannes last year as a Cannes classic. So I'm very, very proud of that particular film. But Laura was a great flyer of the feminist flag. And I learnt, basically, I learnt about feminism and cinema from Laura and from her, from her sessions at, at the Edinburgh Film Festival when I was working there. I remember going down to Radio 4. We had a, a, a well-known American actor uh, with us who went who I was, I was working as a press officer, so I went with the actor down to Radio 4, driven, I may say, by Robbie Coltrane, who was the festival driver. He had an American car, and he would drive the main actors around. So Robbie drove me and this actor down to Radio 4. The presenter did an interview with the famous actor, so that was fine. And then he turned to me and said... Uh, so, Rebecca, what is this feminism in film thing? Uh, is it that the girls have to dress up in pretty dresses and things? So this was <laughs> feminism in 1978. And, uh, and it, it just, I, I, I got the giggles. I, could, <laughs> I, had to, I had to explain feminism from scratch on the radio. 
Wow. My goodness. But Rebecca, can we go back even a little more? Like what... I mean, what got you into the field to begin with? What what were the influences? Uh, I think you started off in theatre and, and even children's television. So tell us a little bit about the journey, you know, why you were interested in drama or film or theatre. And then w- what tips you into a producing role? Is it just, I'm adventurous, I'm willing to get arrested? You know, it was it is it because it was experimental or, or was it like your intention? It was never my Tension. I suppose my. I'm, I. I suppose. I mean, starting from scratch, I loved the movies and I loved going to the cinema, and that was somehow a wonderful escapist thing to do. But also, on telly, we had one channel at home because I grew up in Scotland in a small town, and we had one channel, and that was BBC, and eventually we had BBC Two as well. We didn't have ITV, so I could only watch some extraordinary drama with the plays for today and the Wednesday play. And people like Ken Loach were making extraordinary television, extra- telling extraordinary st- stories. Things like Kathy Come Home and, and Up the Junction and, and all these amazing plays were on telly when I was growing up. And I saw those. I had theatre and arts in the family and it was sort of going on. We were in Ed- we lived near Edinburgh and, and there was all sorts of exciting things going on there. And and a friend said, well, you should go and work at the film festival. And I wrote to Linda three times and eventually she, she employed me one summer. And that was it. That was like, I, I worked there all summer and then I came back for two more summers. And that's when I was at university. And then when I left, I thought I wanted to be a journalist because I'd been writing on the film programme notes and I'd, I'd run a couple of magazines at uni and things. But I ended up not getting the jobs there and and so I worked in the theatre at Riverside Studios for a couple of years and I I liked that I mean I was working on the actual programme of bringing in outside things from all over the world and it was an extraordinary opportunity but I sort of knew that I wanted to do film and I didn't know what role there was and so I, I, I chucked in my job and I booked myself into this one week film production course by a little company called Crosswind Films. And, and that one week was my epiphany. And it was like, I discovered what production was. And uh, we, we got our hands on equipment and we did everything. We did sound, lighting, uh, camera, editing. And I liked it all. But I wasn't any good at anything. But, I, but what I was good at was organising. There's an organisational gene in my family my uh, great grandmother was um, a grand dam in Edinburgh, and she, her husband, owned the Scotsman newspaper, and she, she did things like open Edinburgh Zoo, and she, you know, she was like a, a grand lady of Edinburgh, and uh, so, she, and she was an organizer, and and my mother was an organizer. She was also a manic depressive, but she was a good organizer. She organized a big carnival fete and and all sorts of things. So organizing our us you know in in my family and and so this was suddenly a role that fitted film that fitted me that fitted film and I, I I thought gosh they need somebody to organize let's let's do it and 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 basically that one week course showed me that there was a role for me I mean I you know the only roles that I had thought had anything to do with uh, film production you know films with women were 
being the continuity person, script supervisor, or hair and makeup or costume. And none of those things were right for me. As soon as I discovered production, that was it. And I came into the industry at a very um, propitious time. Channel 4 had just start, was just starting. And I managed to get myself a job on the commission number three at Channel 4, which was a multicultural kids series, um, which was Michael Rosen, the uh, kids poet laureate, his idea and and it was great fun and that was my proper apprenticeship i did 2 years working on that and um and just doing every job ended up producing the last 10 of that series and and having a wonderful time and then after that um drama was definitely my favorite thing so i ended up i, I it was just a good time to get in because they needed production people in the low budget end of filmmaking and and I was in the right place at the right time and worked my way up very quickly. Which is really interesting because I'm very interested in how the industry is now which is obviously really different to then and also education so you I think did a degree in geography um, and now there are lots of degrees in filmmaking and I've spoken to to lots of them I'm sure you have as well Um, and I'm often struck by how many people there are there that I think are probably never going to work in film. And I wonder, where do you think the next generation are coming from? What are their roots that you see? And do you think that it is becoming broader and more diverse? Or do you think that actually still being working class probably and and or disabled are the greatest barriers? Um... Well, it's it's really interesting because when I was starting out in the eighties, diversity was really important. And and actually, if you look at my CV, you will see that you know I did a series of six gay documentaries about women and men. I did my beautiful laundrette. I did an all women film. I did all sorts of films that were, you know, considered diverse. And that and and it. I was really surprised how that disappeared in the 90s and 2000s and it didn't really re-emerge. We, we lost time. Film suddenly became a more financial, it became a more capitalist thing actually and less, uh, there was sort of less opportunity I think as the 80s wore on, as, as Thatcher became ingrained and it sort of got stuck. Companies became more commercial and and it just became an it became more of an industry it was a, more of a cottage industry when i started and it it the sort of financial side of it became much more important somehow and it's a great shame because i think it stepped backward and i think that it was on a roll with early channel 4 it really was because channel 4 had particular bent towards diversity and had this wonderful thing where they actually had a dis- disabled person at the front desk and it's like they were you were told this is what the way we see the world is for everybody and that was hugely important I don't know the reasons but we went backwards and I think I suspect they were economic reasons people are still getting into the film industry in the same old ways though they're, they're getting in as runners or whatever and um, or they're going to film school. I think film school is good for many of the of the professional heads of department, 
except for producers i'm not so sure it's such a good it's such a good way for producers to learn i think producers need to learn on the job and i think that they they if they can work their way up through production or other areas of film i think it's it's very good for them that's really interesting the economic point isn't it cuz um holly when we were speaking to helen o'hara um women in Hollywood. I mean, that is a point she makes that the economics have actually changed and they have actually narrowed opportunity. And that seems to chime with what you're saying, Rebecca. I mean, that you're right. When it's a cottage industry, it can be much more inclusive. And as it becomes, you know, the world of high finance. But I want to ask you about finance because, you know, what one of the big jobs as a producer that you have, as you say, is to get the money. And you've really championed a kind of innovative way for funding say Ken's films which is to get a lot of countries involved and you you've also done some really difficult topics I mean you know whether it's the gig economy the Spanish civil war whatever it is how do you get all those people to kind of come together and go yeah sure we'll we'll put our money into this really difficult film well I was very lucky in that I started with a very good filmmaker I mean I hadn't raised money on film before I came to work with Ken. The films that I'd produced had been financed from single sources. And when it came to Ken, well, actually, it sort of started with, with making the film about the Spanish Civil War, making Land and Freedom, which which is set in Spain. And so it made sense that it was a co-production because it was about Spain and we were filming in Spain. So it made sense that we had a Spanish co-producer. So we we found somebody who ran a similar company to what was Parallax Pictures then. And they brought to us a a very good German producer, a guy called Uli Felsberg. So my sort of co-producing virginity was sort of punctured by these two excellent producers in France, in sorry, in in Spain and and Germany, who introduced me to co-production and introduced me to how you could exploit the funds from their particular countries and bring them to the table. Like, so if if you spent money from Germany in Spain, you could get some extra money from Germany. And and there was also a pan-European fund called Eurimage, which we could get that funding because the UK was still a member of it. They gave up, you know, in, I think, 95, which was just another stupid Brexit thing. An early departure, absolutely wasted, wasted opportunity because actually Eurimage brought the final 15-20% of the money to the table. But they also showed me how you could pre-sell films in different countries. If, like, we already had an audience for Ken films. Ken, Ken was already admired in France and he had had history um, at the Cannes Film Festival. So... People were knew who Ken was in France, so it wasn't difficult to sell his film in advance. So it was like putting together a patchwork quilt of funding. And it was difficult, yes, for the first time it was very difficult because I had no really real idea what on earth I was doing. But I had support. I had I had Uli Felsberg and I had Gerardo Herrero from Spain guiding me through the process. And Sally Hibbin at Parallax also it helped me get the money together and, and we sewed it all together like a patchwork quilt. And then the great thing was the same people wanted to do it again. You know, Land and Freedom worked well. And then so we, we did the next film the same way and the next and the next. And so for, for 15 years, 10, 15 years, we did that route. It's quite good because it's sort of divide and rule. You... You know, if you if you have lots of different funders, 
then you've got nobody who's going to own the whole thing. And then and so you actually buy yourself freedom. You buy yourself the liberty of actually being your own boss. And so that's what we've done. And so we've actually had very, very little interference from anybody as to how we make our films. And that for somebody like Ken and Paul, who are very specific in how they want to make something, nobody's going to be able to tell them anyway. So it's it's worked very well, that system. I do feel as though your films have kind of, I can spot them, I can see down my life and all of those films were kind of significant. Like Land and Freedom, I grew up loving George Orwell and having English teachers that didn't believe that I'd read every George Orwell by the time I was 15. And Land of Freedom, I felt, was was made specifically for me. Ah, that's lovely. <laughs> I thought it was, it felt really personal. Um, so, Rebecca, we're coming close to the end of our time, and I wondered, what is coming next for you? What will we see soon? Well, um, Ken and Paul and I are just in the process of making a film called The Old Oak, which is the third film that we've made up in the northeast, looking at modern times, really. The Old Oak is set in a Durham mining village and it's the Old Oak is the name of the pub and the, the, the main protagonist is the owner of the pub uh, who's barely holding it together with the locals. And then a busload of Syrian refugees lands in the village and the film is really about the two communities and how they conspire to get along together or not, as the case may be. And so... The other key protagonist is a young woman from uh, Syria who is the sort of spokesperson for the group. So it's it's about that. And it, it fits very well with the other two films that we did in the North East, I, Daniel Blake, and Sorry We Missed You. So I suppose you could say it's the third in a, the North East trilogy, but we've we've just finished shooting that and we're editing that at the moment. So hopefully it'll be coming out next year. Fantastic. And you know, those films, so often in the, so I run the Bath Film Festival and we get lots of interns and volunteers and different people through the office. And it's those films, particularly Daniel Blake and um, Sorry I Missed You, that make me say to people, you know, if an audience member is behaving really badly or kind of being difficult or one of the volunteers is having an issue, assume that they're the main character of that film and they've just had the shit kind of day that Ken Loach would show you and you don't want to be the bastard that says something mean to them and isn't kind to them. Always assume that they are the centre of a Ken Loach film and you need to be kind to them. Yeah. Rebecca, I have I have one last question for you. Um I just wonder if producers ever get typecast, you know. I mean, you've you've done a certain kind of film, but then I was really interested in preparing for this interview to find out you also at one point produced Bean with, you know, which is like a slapstick transatlantic comedy. So, I mean, was that different for you or is it the same skills and and do you get typecast uh the same skills very much so yeah i mean i I did bean as producer for hire basically um a working title asked me to do bean because i was available i think and so i did i went out to la and i did that film the same skills same that you know they are transferable skills just because you're making social realist films in on location in the north of England doesn't mean to say that you can't do a period comedy in in uh, southwest of Scotland you know it, it's it, the, they, the skills are the same and directors differ but film production is run very much on army principles the same organizational f- 
principles are used. And so you can just transfer. It's like, it's like getting Danny Boyle to do the 2012 Olympics. Transferable skills, they are. And that's what producing is. It's just about being able to organise, which is why I, I say, you know, people who want to be producers don't actually need to go to film school. They, they're better off with good solid practical degree and and uh, an ability to drive a car you know those things are key uh, and also uh, an ability to put the ego in the boot of the car as well because you're certainly not going <laughs> to meet many non-ego people around the place Rebecca thank you so much uh, that is absolutely fascinating peek into a, a job that yeah, I was with Holly. I just couldn't believe that I hadn't heard your name in the same kind of way, the same scale that I've heard Ken's name. But it's been really illuminating to hear your experiences. For those who are interested, um, the film Rebecca's mentioned that's coming out is The Old Oak. But thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. And Holly, the old oak is currently being shot up in County Durham. I was looking it up and there are lots of pictures of Rebecca and writer Paul Laverty and, of course, director Ken Loach and their 16 films production company all over the local news. It looks fascinating. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, it looks absolutely great. And uh, you might have heard us mentioning the book Women versus Hollywood in that uh, podcast. Next on, we've got Helen O'Hara, who is the author of the book, as well as uh, Empire's film critic and the host of the Empire Film Podcast. So she's a complete pro and fantastic. She is. She is. And, and we learned a hell of a lot. Well, I learned a hell of a lot. You already knew it, but it, it's a fascinating episode. And of course, Holly, we're doing this because not because we're making any money from it or anything like that. We're genuinely interested in film You've spent your whole career in it. I've been getting to watch great films. And the one thing that you can do if you've enjoyed this podcast to support these women and to support us is just literally hit follow or subscribe on this podcast. Share an episode if you like it in your WhatsApp groups. And that will help us a great deal. It would really uh, amplify the work we're trying to do and in turn amplify the work that our guests are trying to do. Absolutely. We all have to lift one another up. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next time. <laughs>